Stick out your Bibles with me. Let's look together again at the book of Romans. The book of Romans. This morning we enter a new chapter in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We will spend um, probably a couple of months here with some breaks in between for Mother's Day and other things um, that we want to address. But we will spend probably two months here in Romans 7. Uh, Then we will take a break and return to finish the book of Genesis and look at the life of Joseph. Uh, And then sometime beginning of next year we will move into the great eight. Romans chapter 8. So Romans chapter 7 this morning. Let's read the first six verses. The first six verses. This is the Word of God. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from this law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. We will spend three messages on these verses, and this first message will consist mainly of us digging for the treasure. That is, we want to make sure that we rightly understand the main doctrine that these six verses are teaching. And this requires a little work. It is not super hard work. But you do need to lean into this message a bit. You do need to be a participant and to have your mind working as we dig into these verses. Now, the second and the third message on these verses, after we have unpacked the text and removed the doctrinal jewel that is here, will be spent examining that jewel, feeling its weight and seeing its implications and allowing it to come to bear upon our lives. Um, There is a very real sense in which this morning's message is us traveling to the Grand Canyon. We're getting to the doctrine of the text and making sure we get to the right doctrine. And then the next two messages will be us seeing the Grand Canyon and enjoying it and appreciating this glorious doctrine that is there. Uh, We unpack a text by asking it questions. So if you ever wonder, how do I unpack a few verses to get at the main doctrine? Well, you ask a text questions, and then you don't give the answers yourself. 
You look to the verses themselves. You look to the context. If you have to, you begin looking at other parts of the Bible to shed light on your questions so that you come to answers. And what I want to do is lead us to unpack these six verses this morning. And really our focus this morning is going to be the first four verses. Um, We're going to ask three questions. Three questions to get at the heart of this passage. So here's question number one. What is the point of Paul's marriage illustration? What is the point of Paul's marriage illustration? You see the illustration. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, right? Till death do we part. If he dies, she is released from the law of marriage. If she leaves her husband while he's alive and goes and lives with another man, she is an adulteress. But if she leaves her husband because he has died and becomes another man's, that is not adultery. And so what is the point of that illustration? Why does Paul bring that to our attention? Well, thankfully, we do not have to look hard for the answer. Paul tells us in verse 1 the point that he's making with the illustration. Verse 1, he says, The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. In other words, there is a limit to the authority of law. Law is an external standard by which people are judged. And how you fare when placed against the standard of law will either bring you blessing or it will bring you curse. If we keep laws, we are blessed by them. If we break laws, we are cursed by them. You and I live as citizens of the United States of America. And the United States of America has laws. If we keep those laws, we are blessed with the freedom to live peaceably here in this country. We are allowed to go about our everyday lives in peace. If we break the laws of our land, punishment comes. Prosecution, fines, jail time, perhaps even the death penalty. So we are bound as citizens of the United States to the laws of the United States. But we are only bound as long as we live. We have a cemetery out by the side of our church where bodies are buried. The spirits of those people buried in that cemetery are now either with God or forever separated from God. But those people were once citizens of the United States like you and I are now. Those people were once bound by the laws of our land. They were once blessed or cursed according to the keeping of U.S. law. For them, those days are done. The laws of the United States of America have no bearing on those who have died. They have entered into a new state of existence. U.S. law no longer applies to people who are with God in heaven or apart from Him in hell. So Paul's point is one that you and I clearly understand and should agree with. Law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, Using the United States to illustrate that is my way of illustrating that. 
Paul chose a very different way of illustrating that point. He chose a marriage illustration. Why did he choose a marriage illustration to make that point? And the reason that's an important question to ask is because Paul gets a lot of flack for this illustration. I have commentaries in my office that say that this is one of the most confused paragraphs that Paul ever wrote. They, they don't like the fact that he chose to use a marriage illustration to make this point. So why did he choose to use a marriage illustration to show that the law is binding only on a person as long as he lives? Well, the reason is found in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. Paul wants to make a point about belonging. Paul wants us as Christians to understand we once belonged to the law. Now we belong to Christ. In a sense, we were once married to the law. Our marriage to the law is over We are now married to Christ. And since that's where he's going in verse 4, we once belonged to the law, now we belong to Christ, he chooses to use a marriage illustration. Now, it's not a perfect illustration. There's no such thing as a perfect illustration. A perfect illustration would be the thing itself, right? Illustrations, well, anyway, you get the point. So, So think about the illustration with me. We are the wife who belonged to this husband called Law. Now in real life, as Christians, we are the ones who died. The Law didn't die. We died to the Law. Verse 4 says, verse 4, we died to the Law through the body of Christ. And now, because we have died to the Law, we are the ones who get to remarry. Now we get to marry Christ. Paul cannot make a perfect marriage illustration out of that because you can't have the same person die and then remarry. If Paul had said the wife died and then remarried, people would laugh because people know that you can't die in real life, you know, in, in this physical world, and then remarry. So in this hell illustration, he had to make the husband the one who died. And that gets all kinds of people confused. And that causes people to come up with the strangest interpretations of these verses. Don't do that. Don't don't get all fanciful with these verses. They're not meant to be complex. He even tells us what he's trying to say. The law is binding on a person only as long as he is alive. That's the point. Don't get mixed up on it. Now, we are free from the law. Oh, happy condition so that we may belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he's going. That's the point of the illustration. So that's question number one. Question number two is this. To what law were we bound before we were saved? To what law were we married? To what law did we belong to before we were saved? Paul is saying that as Christians, we were once bound to a law. We've now been set free because we died to that law. We can now belong to Christ. What is this law 
that used to be our husband. Answer that in your own mind for a moment. See what you come up with. What law did you used to belong to? Well, we have a hint in verse 1. We have a hint in verse 1. Paul says, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. So whatever this law is, it seems to be true that some in the church of Rome knew it. And not all of them knew it, for he makes a distinction. He now says, I'm speaking particularly to those who know the law. So this is a law that some in the church in Rome knew well, and others probably didn't know it quite as well. And the law he's referring to here in particular is the law of adultery, right? That a woman is bound to her husband only as long as he lives. If she lives with another man while her husband is alive, that's adultery. If he dies, that's no longer considered adultery. And so he's referring to this law code that some in the church in Rome are familiar with, which has led some to suggest that the law he has in mind here is the Roman law code. I'm not a scholar on ancient Rome, and I do not know whether ancient Rome had a law against adultery. I do know from many sources that if adultery was illegal in Rome, it was not a law that was taken very seriously. Rome was known as a place where sexual immorality was rampant. Um, Rome has been described as a city where husbands shared their wives with one another as well as their meals with one another. So I find it doubtful. I find it doubtful that Paul has in mind here the Roman law code. Uh, I assume if we in the United States have a law saying that adultery is a criminal offense, you and I are all going to know that. Yet Paul seems to be saying that only a portion of the church in Rome are familiar with this law code. So I don't think it's the Roman law code he has in mind. In fact, it seems to me that what he has in mind is probably the Mosaic law. The law of God given to the Jews at Mount Sinai through Moses. Now, Paul was not ignoring the Gentiles of this church. In fact, probably some of those whom he's talking to, who he says, I'm speaking particularly to those who know the law, some of those were Gentiles who had a real interest in Judaism, may have even been Jewish proselytes seeking to become Jews through circumcision when they became Christians. Paul is addressing in the church of Rome those who loved the law deeply. There were some in the church in Rome who loved the law deeply and they were wondering something. And here's what they're wondering. If salvation is all of grace... What is the role of this law that I love so much? Paul, if you're saying that, that salvation is all of grace, what about the law? We love the law. We've committed ourselves to the Mosaic law. You're telling us salvation is not by law-keeping, and we believe that now as Christians. Salvation is not by law-keeping. But what does that mean for the law? Do we just throw it out? Those are the kinds of questions Paul has been dealing with throughout this book and will continue to deal with throughout this book. So there's good reason to believe it's the Mosaic law that Paul has in mind. In fact, we know that it's at least part of the Mosaic law he has in mind because the illustration he uses is that of adultery. And adultery is one of the Ten Commandments 
within the Mosaic law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But there's a problem. All right, mind's working, engine's turning, pay attention. There's a problem. If Paul is simply speaking about the Mosaic law as the Mosaic law, and he's saying that Christians have now died to the Mosaic law, no longer belong to the Mosaic law, but belong to Christ, there's a problem. Namely, this only applies to a few Christians. And it probably doesn't apply to any of us in this room. If the law in this passage is the Mosaic law, period, then remember who it was that was under the Mosaic law. The Bible nowhere teaches that you and I were ever obligated to make sacrifices or to keep feast days. God did not give the Mosaic law to the Amorites or to the Hittites, nor to the Persians or the Greeks. God never required the Perizzites to build him a temple or a tabernacle. God never called the Philistines to establish him a priesthood. The Gentiles of the Roman Empire were not required to celebrate feast days. The Mosaic Law was given to one nation, ancient Israel. And you and I in this room were never under those obligations. We were never bound under the Mosaic Law per se. And so if that's what Paul's talking about, freedom from the old Mosaic Law and the feasts and the sacrifices and the ceremonies, then he's really talking to Jews in the first century who were moving out of that into the New Covenant. I have a commentary in my office that says this passage has no direct application to Christians today. Isn't that an amazing statement? This passage has no direct relevance to Christians today. It was only for post-cross Jews in the first century. I don't agree with that. My understanding is that when Paul says that, all, that Christians have died to the law, that Christians once belonged to the law and now belong to Christ, I think he's speaking of something that is true of every Christian that ever lived. That we have all died to a law that we have all come to belong to Christ. So if that's true, what is this law to which we all once were bound? I agree with Charles Hodge who says this. This certainly is not the Mosaic law considered as a system of religious ceremonies designed for one people for a limited time. It is the Mosaic law considered as a revelation of the moral law. In other words, there is a law to which all people are bound, be they Jew or Gentile. There is a law to which Americans and Europeans and Africans and Asians and Australians are all equally bound. This is a law by which all will be judged. A law by which all will receive either blessing or curses. This is the law that is woven into the very fabric of our universe, into the very fabric of our beings. This is the law of God which all of us are under by nature. It's the moral law of God. So then why does Paul make reference to the Old Testament Mosaic law at Mount Sinai? Answer, because it's in the Mosaic law at Mount Sinai that we have revealed most clearly what the moral law of God is, namely laid out 
and Ten Commandments. In fact, if we look closely at this passage, we will see that Paul, when he's talking about law, 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 he's not talking about the laws of the priesthood. He's not talking about the laws of what garment the high priest must wear. He's not talking about the laws of how to make your sacrifices. He's talking about the moral law of God revealed in the Ten Commandments. We see that in our illustration, where he uses the illustration of adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And a few verses down, he's going to quote from this law code that he has in mind. And what is the quote he's going to give? It is in verse 7. You shall not covet. In other words, it is quite clear in Romans 7 that when Paul thinks of the moral law of God to which all people are bound, he is thinking of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Laws, written with the very finger of God into stone. And there, in those Ten Commandments, we have a true summary of the morality to which all people are called to, the standard by which all human beings will be judged. Maybe you're here this morning, and you are not a Christian. And perhaps you have always assumed that the Ten Commandments are a Christian thing. That these commands about worshiping God only and honoring your parents, and not lying or coveting, that these were things that Christians were obligated to, that this was a law that Christians put themselves under, but non-Christians were not obligated to the Ten Commandments. You need to know the Bible says differently. What Paul is teaching in this passage is that there is a moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments to which all people are bound. Non-Christian friend, you are under a law which you are required by God to keep and which you will be judged by on the last day. You are a captive to this law. God's requirements of you can be found in the Ten Commandments, They can be summarized even more in the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor. But one day you will stand before God and give an account for how your life has conformed to or failed to conform to these laws of God. And if you know anything of yourself rightly, then you know that on the last day the law of God will condemn you because none of us stand up well to the moral law of God. But keep listening, because there's good news. There's good news coming. Let's keep going. So when God gave these Ten Commandments, He gave them as a part of a gracious covenant to Israel. The whole point of the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai was to say... Learn from these commandments that you are sinful and cannot keep these commandments. 
Learn from these commandments that you must have forgiveness. That's why I'm giving you a priesthood. That's why I'm giving you sacrifices and feast days to point you to a Savior. Every one of these ceremonial ordinances are going to point you to a Messiah that is coming. And I'm calling you to turn from your own ways of living and to trust me and to rest in my Messiah. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament um, covenant was a covenant of grace. Trust me. Keep my commandments because you trust me. If you fail, it's okay. I've set up sacrifices pointing to Jesus Christ where you can have forgiveness. Learn to trust me. The question for each and every Israelite in the Old Testament was this. Would they trust God in the salvation He offered or would they remain in their sins trying to get to heaven by law-keeping? Would they learn from the law of God that they were sinful and needed a Savior and run to the Savior? Or would they continue trying to be righteous on their own? Now, folks, we live in different days. Jesus has come. He's lived. He's died. He's established a new covenant. But the question has not changed. Do you see that you are a sinner? And are you resting in Christ for salvation? Or are you trying to get to heaven through law-keeping? Through living a decent life? Do we actually think that we will be found blameless if our lives are judged according to the moral law of God? Do, we, do not each and every one of us in this room have a thousand sins crying out against us. All mankind has been under a covenant since God created us. That first one made with Adam. And Adam received it on our behalf. The covenant was simple. Obey God and be blessed. Disobey God and be cursed. Are you still working on that covenant? Are you still thinking you can obey God perfectly and be blessed? God has established a covenant of grace. You don't have to be a part of the covenant of works. Because of Jesus Christ, you can rest in Him and be saved. Paul's point in this is to say that because we've all failed, the law demands our condemnation. The moral law of God to which all human beings are obligated demands our condemnation. And we will be condemned by that law unless we've been brought out of reach of its condemnation. Unless we've died to the law. Isn't that the point? Isn't that what, what Paul is saying? That for Christians, this scary outlook of judgment because the law condemns us is now, it's now looking rosier because in Jesus, we've died to the law. We've escaped the law's condemnation. Here's the third question. What does it mean that we have died to the law? What does it mean that we have died to the law? The moral law of God. I'm going to answer that with three brief statements. Number one, the law was our husband and had authority over us. The law was our husband and had authority over us. From the beginning 
of our existence in this world, mankind has been under law. There was never a human being in the history of the world upon whom God did not place the obligation to be holy. All human beings are to keep God's law. All human beings are to do God's will. God has given the law to humanity as an authoritative husband who shows us how we are to live and holds us accountable for the way we live. More than that, God has given the law the power to condemn us. If we fail to obey our husband, to be faithful to the law in every way, the law demands rightly that we be judged accordingly. Don't get the wrong impression. Don't start saying, ooh, that wicked law. That terrible law. I hate the law. I'm so glad to be rid of that law. The law was not the problem in this relationship. The law is good. It's we who are wicked. The law is a righteous husband. Don't picture the law as an abusive husband treating his wife unfairly. The problem in this marriage was not the husband. It was the wife. It was us. There's something wrong with us. The law's expectations of us were good and right. We are the ones with the twisted hearts and the darkened minds who would not obey and do what was right. In fact, you want to see just how wicked human beings are? Look at the middle of verse 5. Look at the middle of verse 5. See those seven English words in the ESV. Our sinful passions aroused by the law. Aroused by the law. Do you understand what Paul was teaching in those words? Natural human hearts hate God so much that when He gave us the law as a righteous husband, our hearts sinned all the more out of spite. In other words, God gave us the law to serve us for our good, to teach us what is right, to help us do what is right. And our hearts are so wicked and hate God so much that as soon as we receive from the law the word of God, you shall not covet as a gift of love, our heart said, hmm, God doesn't want me to covet. Guess what I'm going to do? Our hearts pounced on the law as a way to do more that would spite God. Our sinful passions were aroused by the law. So the problem is not the law. The problem is us. Statement number two. Through Christ, the law's claims on us have been fulfilled and ended. Statement number two. Through Christ, the law's claims on us have been fulfilled and ended. What claims did the law have on us? But because we've been so wicked, the law demanded that justice be served. We cannot expect God's name to be dishonored, His law trampled, and nothing required in return. The law's claim on us was hell. Eternal judgment. The wrath of God. Yet Christ came for His people. And on the cross, 
bore the wrath of God that they deserved. This is you if you believe on Jesus. We've said it many times, we'll say it again. The greatest suffering that took place at the cross was not the crown of thorns. It was not the nails. It was not the spear that pierced Christ's side. The greatest suffering was when God the Father forsook His Son on the cross, turned away from Him, and poured out all the hell that our sins deserved on Christ. Christ bore and fully absorbed the righteous wrath of God that the law demanded. The law's requirement has been fulfilled. But there's more. Because the law not only required that we be cursed for our sins, the law also required that if God's going to bless us, we have to earn it. The law says, obey God and be blessed. We must be righteous if God is going to be just to bless us. And this means we must be truly righteous people. And so Jesus came. And He lived a perfectly righteous life as our representative. He accomplished the righteousness that we could not accomplish and now He gives it to us freely as a gift. Jesus is the only human being in history who met each and every one of the law's demands perfectly. And He lived that life for His people. Church, listen. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, His righteousness, His faithfulness is credited to us. So, every claim of the law on our lives has been met and fulfilled and ended. The law can no longer require anything of us. The law cannot take you to court and to say, I was married to so-and-so, and that person left and went and belonged to Christ, and that person owes me this, 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 and this. Every requirement has been met by the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would belong to Him. And that's the third statement. By faith, Christ has become our new husband. Christ has become our new husband. On the last day, it will be Christ, not the law, that determines our fate. Because of Christ, heaven will be our home. Notice verse 4. Notice verse 4. Jesus died that we would belong to Him. Do you see that word belong? Jesus died, Christian, so that you would belong to Him. Do you see love there? Do you feel the love of Christ for you? Do you think about all that He went through so that you would belong to Him? He wants you. He cherishes you like a good husband cherishes his wife. Do you see the compassionate, forgiving, merciful love of Jesus? He looked upon us as rank sinners and said, I want that person to belong to me. What kind of love is this? That Christ would go to the cross so that we would belong to Him. It's amazing love. It ought to humble us. Notice that Jesus Christ is a risen Lord. Do you see that in verse 4? Right? Him who has been raised from the dead. Jesus died for us. 
that we would belong to Him, but He did not remain dead. When I say, church, we belong to Jesus, I'm not saying we're widows. We are not the bride of a dead husband. We are the bride of a living husband, one who has raised from the dead. And He is our Savior. What is the jewel that we've unearthed from this passage? What is the central doctrine that these verses are teaching? It's this. Through Jesus' death, we have been rescued from the law's righteous condemnation so that we now belong to Christ. Let me say it again. Through Jesus' death, we have been rescued from the law's righteous condemnation so that we now belong to Christ. Next week, we will see in verses 4, 5, and 6 some of the great implications of this doctrine, the, the glories of this doctrine. This ought to change you. If you believe this, it will change you. It will change the kind of fruit your life produces. It will change the way you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But for now, let me close with a call for you to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close with a call for you to give up all hopes of being right with God by law-keeping. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, don't you ever turn to law, any law of any kind, for salvation. Salvation is not a wage earned. The wages of sin is death. Sin operates on wages. Eternal life is a gift received. So don't turn to law. Don't think human decency will work. Don't say, well, my grandparents had these expectations of me and as long as I'm living in a way that would have made my grandpappy happy, I'm doing all right. That's law. No. The way of salvation is to turn to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I don't have what it takes. I am a rank sinner. My heart does not love you as it ought. My only hope of heaven is you. Will you save me? And we rest on Christ. And we trust His promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We find our peace and we find our security and we find our confidence not in how well I did today. Did I have a good Monday? Did I have a bad Monday? Did I, did I pray and read my Bible and treat my family well and fulfill my calling? Or did I just utterly mess up in every way? I'm not going to find my security in that. I'm going to find my security in the fact that by faith in Jesus Christ, my name is written in the book of life and my God loves me and He will not stop loving me because I am dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Have you given up law-keeping as a way of salvation? Don't give up law-keeping. Give up law-keeping as a way of salvation. What we're going to find in the next two sermons is that when we believe this, we come to love the law. Christ's commands become so precious to us. We receive them as honey to our lips because we want to please the Savior who has loved us so much.
but we keep the law not out of duty and obligation, trying by the skin of our teeth to make it into heaven. No, we keep the law because our Savior has already secured our place in heaven by his own blood, and we just want to love him, and we want to be useful to him. All right, I pray those things are clear in our minds. I pray that the Father would use these things. Let's pray together.